0: Welcome and thank you for connecting with us at Parkwood Baptist Church. Here at Parkwood, we exist to glorify God by laboring together for the growth of all believers while going with the gospel to all peoples. You can find more information about our church at parkwoodonline.org. By visiting our website, you will be able to learn more about Parkwood and our mission. Now join us as we grow together through the teaching of God's Word. My name is Scott Hand. I'm the local disciple-making pastor here at Parkwood. Uh, Pastor Jeff is away this morning. His oldest daughter was supposed to get married last night, or yesterday, but unfortunately that had to be postponed, Um, but Pastor Jeff is still away with his family, so let's make, make sure we pray for him and Celeste and Anna and Jonathan, as this has been a trying time for all of them. Uh, But it is my honor and joy to be with you this morning. So we're gonna continue in the sermon series in Luke. So please turn in your Bibles to chapter one of the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter one, verses 26 through 38. Now, before we read the passage, I wanna take some time to kind of set the stage for a minute. I wanna explain some things to you first, because I want you to fully understand what is about to transpire in the Gospel of Luke. And in order to do that, you kinda need to know some things that will help you first. Because what we are about to discuss is the beginning, and really it started last week, but it is the beginning of the most important story you will ever hear. It is the beginning of the most crucial unfolding of events in human history. Literally, the world is about to be changed by what is happening in the first couple of chapters of Luke. Now, Pastor Jeff talked a lot about some of these things last week, but I feel the need to go into a little more detail this morning because I realized from the outset, it's Christmas time, and there may be people here um, who, let's just be honest, maybe don't want to be here. Uh, Maybe you're invited by a family member, and that's why you're here, maybe, because it's Christmas, you're here, and you think, hey, I, I should come to church on Christmas, and that's great. Whatever the reason you're here, I'm glad you are here. We are very glad you are here. But what I want you to understand is that God brought you to church this morning. You see, we believe here at Parkwood that God is completely sovereign, which means he's in control. So we believe that God brought you here to church this morning because he wants you to hear the greatest story ever told. So I'm gonna do something now that uh, would probably cause me to fail my preaching classes in seminary. I have a three point introduction, So, uh, but I want you to bear with me. I think as we go along, you will uh, understand why. So there's three things by way of introduction that I want us to understand before we launch in to our text for this morning. Number one, the first thing we need to understand is that this is a true story. What you're gonna hear is a true story. My major in seminary was apologetics, which is defending your faith. So I had to read many, many books by atheists and agnostics and skeptics and who all tried to discredit Christianity. They especially love to attack the Christmas and Easter narratives because those are very foundational and fundamental to our faith. So they figure, hey, if we can disprove those, we're good. But they can't. Whether they argue from a philosophical, uh, archeological, or a theological point of view, their arguments simply are not very compelling. Several years ago, a famous pastor had this to say about the Bible when he explained the reliability of the Bible. And I think this is really good. He says, quote, the Bible is a reliable collection of historical documents written down by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses Who report to us supernatural events that took place in fulfillment of specific prophecies and claim that their writings are divine rather than human in origin. Now, to my knowledge, to every major work of criticism against Christianity, there has been a rebuttal written by a Christian scholar that refutes it. Nothing has held water. The Bible does and will always prevail. What you're holding, what we are reading, is a true story. Number two, the second thing we need to understand is this this is a story full of miracles. This is a story full of miracles. Luke, in his entire gospel, records at least 20 miracles. Several of them happen right here in chapter one. Now, a miracle is an act or an event that is supernatural. It means it is contrary to natural law and can only be explained by divine intervention. It is a time when God halts or intervenes in the normal human experience or processes. Now, I realize that maybe believing in miracles may be a stretch for some of you. Like, really, pastor, I come to church on Christmas and you want me to believe in miracles. You want me to suspend my rational, mental capability and believe in something like the virgin birth, let's say? Well, yes, I do, (laughs) and I understand your skepticism, but I want you to see that you don't actually have to commit intellectual suicide to believe in miracles. In fact, some of the smartest people in the world who've ever lived were followers of Jesus who believed in miracles. C.S. Lewis, for example, theologian and philosopher and professor at both Oxford and Cambridge, was on the cover of Time Magazine in September 1947 with a headline that read, Oxford's C.S. Lewis, His Heresy, Christianity. And in the six page article, it explained the shock of how an Oxford intellect, such as Lewis, could believe in things like heaven and hell and miracles. In fact, the article called him and others like him, quote, a growing band of heretics among modern intellectuals, end quote. Now this prompted Lewis to write an entire book called Miracles in which he called the incarnation the grand miracle and explains with incredible rationality and lucidity the existence of miracles. When God does a miracle, any miracle, the purpose is to show that God is doing something and we must pay attention. That's what's happening here in the first part of Luke. Last week, Pastor Jeff mentioned that up to this point, God has been silent for around 400 years. There's a period of time in between the testaments when God has been silent for 400 years. And now, we saw it last week, God is beginning to speak in a profound way in the Gospel of Luke. In fact, Pastor John MacArthur calls the first couple chapters of Luke, quote, an explosion of miraculous activity. So yes, this is a story full of miracles. Number three, the third thing we need to understand is this story is certain. It's certain. When we go back to verse four of the first chapter of Luke, we see that Luke is writing to provide certainty. That's why he's writing his gospel. So how does he provide this certainty? Well, one way is through details. Oftentimes we gloss over the details that we find in the Bible, but Luke especially is a gospel writer who loves to include details. Now the details are provided to show fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. These are prophecies that were given hundreds and hundreds of years ago and Luke is cluing us in that hey, these are coming true now. Things such as Mary being a virgin or Joseph being from the house of David. (coughs) But there's another reason as to how Luke's details provide us with certainty and I want you to see it. Providing details to a story gives it credibility and the opportunity for validation. Let me give you an example. If I were to tell you about my daughter's births, I have two biological daughters, if I were to tell you about their births, I could go about it in two ways. First, I could say that both my biological daughters were born in Thailand, and then I could leave it at that and just hope and expect that you would take me at my word. or I could tell you that they were both born in Bangkok, Thailand at Bumrungrad International Hospital. Both were delivered by the same doctor, Dr. Poonsak Di. My oldest was born via emergency C-section at 11:32 a.m. on November 16th, 2010, and my youngest was born via scheduled C-section at 12:30 p.m. on September 1st, 2014. Now, which of these two ways is more credible? <laughs> which way is more believable? Which one can be verified more easily? You see what I'm getting at here? I provided you with so many details that if you wanted to, you could go verify those details. And it wouldn't take you long to determine if I'm telling the truth or if I'm lying. And in fact, if I am lying, (laughs) there is no way I'm going to provide you with all of those details because I know it won't take you long to figure out I'm lying and label me a fraud. So the fact that Luke provides us with so many details, and we're gonna see this as we, as Pastor Jeff preaches through the book, pay attention to the slew of details that Luke provides. But, we, but in doing that, he lends credibility and certainty to his story. So now that we've kind of set the stage for us, we see that this is a true story, it's a story full of miracles, and that is it is a certain story I want us to read our passage. So would you please stand now as I read Luke 1, 26 through 38. (coughs) In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, to the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying Let's pray. Lord, help us as we open your word now. Help us to learn from it, to be challenged by it, to be convicted by it, to be encouraged by it. May you be praised now in this place. your name we pray, amen. So my main idea this morning is this. The announcement of the birth of Jesus signals the fulfillment of God's promise to provide a savior for the world. So now all I'm really gonna do is just teach us through the passage and then draw some application. The first thing we're gonna look at is the angel's greeting. The angel's greeting. Verse 26 begins with, in the sixth month. So in the sixth month refers to the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. Elizabeth we know from last week is the kinswoman of Mary who was barren and is now pregnant with John the Baptist. Now angels, It says, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. So, angels are typically used as messengers of God. This is the third time, actually, that we meet Gabriel. The first time is in Daniel 9, when he interprets Daniel's vision. And then back in verse 19 of chapter 1, last week, we saw Gabriel when he announced the birth of John the Baptist. Gabriel was sent by God. So he didn't just wake up one morning and think, oh, I'm gonna go tell Mary something. This is an act of God. God is at work here. Next, Luke tells us that God sent Gabriel to a city of Nazareth. Now, city is actually not a very fitting description of Nazareth. It was a tiny, insignificant place in the region of Galilee that apparently had a bad reputation. We know this because in John chapter 1, if you remember, when Philip tells Nathanael about Jesus. He calls him Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathanael's immediate reaction is, can anything good come from Nazareth? It's kind of how people talk about me and Gastonia. But we won't go there. It's okay. But Nazareth is an insignificant place in its size, wealth, and importance in culture. But it is immensely important because it is fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. The king of kings... Wasn't born in a booming, wealthy metropolis. He was born in a lowly, humble, insignificant place. Next, we meet Mary. The angel was sent to Nazareth to a virgin named Mary. Now, Mary was just a small town Jewish girl, probably no older than 14 at this time. And she was a virgin. She had not slept with her fiance Joseph, nor with any other man. Now Mary's virginity is important for several reasons. First, again, it is a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Isaiah 7:14 says, "Behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel." Now the second reason the virgin birth is important, or the, the fact that Mary is a virgin is important, is because this is a hint the beginnings of us understanding the doctrine that Jesus was fully God and fully man, and therefore free from original sin. Now Wayne Grudem in his book, Systematic Theology, explains it like this. God in his wisdom ordained a combination of human and divine influence in the birth of Christ so that his full humanity would be evident to us from the fact of his ordinary human birth from a human mother, and his full deity would be evident from the fact of his conception in the Virgin Mary's womb by the powerful work of the Holy Spirit. So he is fully God and fully man. And we begin to see that doctrine played out here. <coughs> now, there's another reason why Mary's virginity is important. Because it proves that she wasn't already pregnant. Her being a virgin rules out any other more natural or predictable uh, means of conception. You see, God wanted us to make sure that we knew that the conception of his son in Mary's womb was not the result of man and that it couldn't be claimed as the result of man, so he chose a virgin. Next, we're introduced to Joseph. Joseph was betrothed. Now, a betrothal back then was similar to our engagement period now, but it was a much, much more serious thing to break one off. The consequences were often disastrous, and we'll look more at those in a minute. Then we learned that Joseph was from the house of David. Now, why is that important? Because legally, in the Jewish culture, since Joseph was Jesus's father, even by adoption, that would put Jesus squarely in the line of David and make him the fulfillment of all the prophecies and promises given to the son of David. On to verse 28 and 29. The angel greets Mary. Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she, Mary, was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Now. Here's what I think is crazy about this. Mary doesn't seem to be too shocked that there's an angel that is just like showed up in her house or while she's out working in the field. This angel just like shows up. She doesn't seem to be bothered by that. What she's bothered by or what she's more concerned with is that the angel calls her favored by God. You see, Mary doesn't understand that. In her mind, she's just a young teenage girl trying to live a good, quiet, normal Jewish life. And an angel shows up in her world and calls her favored by God. And then he says it again in verse 30. The angel says, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. So now the angel three times, he's called her the favored one. He's called her the Lord is with her. And then he says, she has found favor with God. Now the definitions of these words and phrases in the Greek are clear, and they indicate one thing, and that is grace. The angel is calling Mary the graced one. She's a recipient of God's grace, not because of anything she has done, but because of what she is going to be called to do. There is no indication anywhere whatsoever that Mary is a dispenser, a giver of grace. Catholic theology teaches that Mary is full of grace and then one who can give and dispense grace. Now, I'm not trying to be critical, but that's just nowhere to be found in the text. It's, in fact, the exact opposite. She's the graced one. Now, I don't have time to go into all the the issues of Catholic theology, but I do wanna direct you, if you're interested, to a fantastic article by Tom Schreiner. Tom Schreiner is a professor at Southern Seminary. I found the article on desiringgod.org, and he lists the four main errors of Catholic theology when it comes to Mary, specifically, and what is the Protestant response to those. It's very short, very informative, very succinct. It's called, Mary, Did You Know? And it's by Tom Schreiner. Now, point number two, let's look at the angel's announcement. The angel's announcement. (coughs) Beginning in verse 31, the angel Gabriel explains to Mary how God's grace is going to come upon her, why she's called the graced one. He says, behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Now, this birth announcement is very similar to other birth announcements in the Bible. In Genesis 16, when Hagar is told she will become pregnant and give birth to Ishmael. In Judges 13, when the birth of Samson is announced. And then just last week, when Gabriel announced to Zechariah the birth of John the Baptist. The pattern is the same. A heavenly figure, sometimes God himself, will appear, announce the birth, and then name the child, and then usually provide some sort of assurance or sign afterwards. In this case, Gabriel tells Mary that her baby will be named Jesus. In Hebrew, this is Yeshua or Joshua. It means deliverer, savior, rescuer, or more fully, the Lord is salvation. So think about this. At this moment in time, Gabriel is identifying to Mary that her son is the savior, the long-awaited rescuer who will save the people from their sins. Mary, the time is now, no more waiting. He's coming, and he's coming in you, Mary. In this moment, this would have been incredibly profound and unimaginable for her. And then, over the next two verses, the angel gives us five truths about Jesus. Starting in verse 31, he will be great and he will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. First, he will be great. Now the word great literally means great. But let's turn to Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. And I just want us to read this and just... We're not gonna go into detail, I just want us to see the greatness of Jesus that's mentioned in Hebrews one, one through four. It says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, Jesus, whom he appointed the heir of all things, That's Jesus, the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. That's Jesus he's talking about. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Folks, that's greatness, That's greatness beyond anything we can even imagine. And Gabriel says, Mary, this is your son. He will be great. Isaiah 9, 6 through 7 is the great prophecy that says, for unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He will be great. Next, the angel says Jesus will be called the son of the most high. Now the term most high is often used in the Bible to describe God. It speaks of his transcendence. There is no one higher, no one greater, no one more powerful, no one more holy than God. He is the highest. And Jesus is God's son. Now now there are multiple places we could go in the Bible to look to to learn where Jesus is God's son. But I wanna just look at John chapter five. You don't have to turn there, but John chapter five. This is just after Jesus has healed the paralyzed man who has been waiting by the pool for 38 years. And the Jewish leaders become angry with Jesus. In verse 15, John writes, the man who had been healed, the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. So they're upset with Jesus because he's healing on the Sabbath, right? And Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, listen, but because he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So the Jews are persecuting Jesus for healing on the Sabbath. They want to kill him for claiming to be God's son. But again, we go back to what Gabriel is telling Mary, this is your baby, this is your son, the son of the Most High, and we know he will eventually be killed for this. Now the truths that follow in verses 32 and 33, the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end refers specifically to a prophecy found in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that says that a son of David in the lineage of David will be the one who will reign forever as king. This shows Jesus' eternal kingship, that one day all the nations will bow before King Jesus. Now, Luke spends the rest of his gospel explaining who Jesus is explaining the names and the titles of Jesus, explaining his relationship between God and people, and it will be fascinating. I am so excited to learn and to sit under the rest of the Gospel of Luke. But for now, let's think about Gabriel informing Mary about her son. But let's look at Mary's response, third point, Mary's response. (coughs) Mary asked the angel, in verse 34, how will this be since I am a virgin? Now, this is a perfectly natural and obvious question. But we must contrast this response of Mary to Zechariah's response from last week. See, last week Zechariah asked, How will I know this? Mary asked today, How will this be? Those are very different questions. Zechariah is essentially asking for a sign or some sort of assurance. He needs some help in order to believe. He's not quite convinced. How will I know this? Or or, how will I know that what you're saying is true? That's really what he's asking. There's, There's unbelief there. Mary, on the other hand, seems to be fully convinced it's going to happen fully convinced that it can happen, her question is, how will it happen? Now, I love, this, the way my brain works sometimes, I love to think about what else Mary could have asked right here, or what are some other things Mary could have said. So I, I'm sitting here thinking, all right, maybe, maybe Mary was like, okay, Gabriel, I know what you mean. You mean after Joseph and I get married, And after we come together, and after we start having kids, one of those kids will be the Messiah. That's what you mean, right? Right, Gabriel? Or, or, or wait a second. You just said he's gonna be the king, right? So what does that make me? Am I gonna be the queen mother? Am I gonna get up fame and fortune and money? What are we we talking? Because I can get on board with that, maybe selfishly. That might have been what she was thinking. But no, that's not what Mary asked. Mary says, how will this be since I am a virgin? Mary knows the angel means now. She doesn't expect fanfare. She knows her situation. She knows who she is. I think Mary knows the ramifications of this moment, which is why in full faith and belief, she says, how can this be? since I am a virgin. And then we know she's full of faith because the angel responds in verse 35 with assurance. He says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, Mary, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born to you will be called holy. And then he repeats, the Son of God. So in response to Mary's question, the angel lovingly says, the Holy Spirit will cause you to be pregnant. It won't be because of Joseph. It won't be because of another man. Your baby will be placed in you by the Holy Spirit and for that reason he will be called holy. Now a lot could be said here about the verbs that Luke uses to talk about the moment of conception. He says the Holy Spirit will come upon you and will overshadow you. But I hope your mind goes back to another famous instance of the Spirit of God overshadowing or hovering over something. Think back to Genesis chapter one, verse two. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the earth and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now this is significant because the very next thing that happens is creation. God said, let there be light, and there was light. So you see, back in Genesis, we see the Godhead working together to bring about the creation of the world. We know God was there, we just read the Spirit was hovering, and Hebrews one tells us that Jesus was there. Now back in Luke one, it's the same thing. The Godhead is working together to bring about the Savior of the world. In the power of God, the Holy Spirit will overshadow Mary and cause her to become pregnant with Jesus, Father, Son, and Spirit. Fascinating. And then, verses 36 and 37, Mary doesn't ask for a sign. She doesn't need, seem to need reassurance, but God, in his goodness, provides her with an incredibly encouraging sign. Verse 36, the angel tells Mary about Elizabeth's pregnancy. Remember, Elizabeth had kept it hidden for five months. So Mary doesn't know. What she did probably know was that Elizabeth had been living for years with shame and scorn from being an older, childless woman, but now her joy is immense. And then then verse 37, the angel says to Mary, for nothing will be impossible with God. That's the answer to Mary's question, right? Hey, Gabriel, (laughs) how's this gonna happen because I'm a virgin because nothing is impossible with God, Mary? That's the answer to her question. And if you look at the whole Bible, that's really a pretty consistent theme. Genesis 18, after Sarah laughs when she's told she's gonna have a baby in her old age, the Lord spoke to Abraham in verse 13 and says, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Psalm 115, three, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. And then Jeremiah 32, 17. O Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. This is a, this is a doctrine. This is a truth. Nothing is impossible with God. Mary is encouraged by that truth. <clears throat> All right, so what this morning? We've, we've, walked our, we've walked through the text, and then we're gonna attempt to draw some application. I have two questions this morning. Number one, have you trusted in the promised Savior? Have you trusted in the promised Savior? So as we've seen this morning, Jesus was no accident. The coming of Jesus was predicted and promised by God from the beginning. The message of Christmas is that God fulfilled his promise to send a savior. Christmas is something that God has done. And folks, this is what makes Christianity completely different than every other religion, including no religion. You see, the essence of every other religion or worldview is advice. The essence of Christianity is news. Think about it. Other religions or worldviews say, hey, you should do this and you'll be happy. Or don't do this and you'll be accepted. Or or, achieve this and you'll be satisfied. Or get this and you'll find meaning and hope in life. What is this? This is simply advice on how to live and be happy. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is news the gospel says, this is what has been done in human history. This is how God has shown his love for his people. He planned and sent a rescuer. He didn't leave us in our broken and dead state. The gospel is good, no, great news. I want to read Galatians 4.4 4, and just listen to the news. Just listen. But when the fullness of time had come, see that it's planned, it's planned. The fullness of time had come. God sent forth his son, that's news. He sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. John 3 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That's great news. It's the greatest news you'll ever hear. The whole point of Christmas is that we couldn't save ourselves. That's the whole point. If we could save ourselves, there'd be no need for Jesus to have come. He sent, God sent his son as a rescuer and there's nothing you can do, nothing I can do to save ourselves. We're not good enough. Now some of you may have the opposite problem and think you're too bad. Well, Jesus deals with this in John 6. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me will never thirst. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. No matter how bad you are, if you turn your life over to Jesus, he will embrace you. If you think that sounds impossible, remember, nothing is impossible with God. I urge you to believe in jesus surrender your life to him and become a part of the greatest story ever told my second question and this is for those of you in the room who have already trusted in the promise of the savior i have a different question for you and for us do you trust in the promises and plans of god do you trust in the promises and plans of god now, let's look at Mary for just a second. Now, I have to be careful here because Mary's not the main character of the story. Jesus is, but the language in the text does indicate that Mary's attitude should be held in high regard and is worthy of imitation. In verse 38, after having been told this impossible news from the angel, Mary responds, behold, I'm a servant of the Lord let it be to me according to your word. This is an incredible attitude. One commentator calls this, quote, Mary's courageous expression of wholehearted self-surrender. I like that. You gotta put yourself in her shoes. Here's a young lady who is facing a lifetime of scorn and ridicule, potentially being labeled as an adulterer, which brings with it the possibility of being stoned to death. Think of John chapter eight. Mary's life is about to be turned upside down. I can only imagine the questions that are swirling around in her head. Will people believe me? Will they believe that the Holy Spirit caused me to be pregnant? Will they believe me when I say I have not been unfaithful? What will Joseph say? He has every right to leave me, to publicly shame me. What will my parents say? will I be killed for this? Mary faces all of this and her response is, I'm a servant of the Lord. Literally, she says, I'm a handmaiden of the Lord. Means I'm here to serve. Mary says, I'm in. God, I'm in. I'll go. I'll do it. I'm in. You're worth it. This reminds me of when my wife and I were overseas. Whenever someone would come to faith, we would teach them and encourage them about believer's baptism. And at the time when someone would get baptized, we would ask them a series of questions. The first of which is similar to what we ask here. It's about a public profession of faith. But then the, we would add two additional questions that dealt with the reality of persecution that would inevitably come to believers In this country. The first additional question we asked was Are you telling everyone here that you will follow Jesus and never turn back? And the second additional question was Are you telling everyone here that you will follow Jesus and never turn back, even when they hit you, curse you, arrest you, throw you in prison, and threaten to kill you? and my wife and I stood there time after time. we watched new believers in the waters of baptism, faced with a future of persecution and difficulty and maybe death, who would answer those questions with a yes, yes. Oftentimes, with tears in their eyes, but a smile on their face, they would say, yes, I'm in. That is complete and utter trust and surrender. So what about you? What about me? What about us? Can we say with Mary, when faced with an uncertain and difficult future, can we say, I'm a servant of the Lord? Or are we resisting something that we know the Lord is calling us to do? And are you resisting because it seems impossible? More impossible than a 14 year old virgin getting pregnant and giving birth to the Son of God? Probably not. In order to be able to say with Mary that you are a servant of the Lord, it requires obedience and surrender. You have to trust the Lord. So do you trust the Lord for his plans and promises for your life? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we claim that we trust you. We know it's difficult. It's incredibly difficult to sacrifice, to understand what may come of us if we completely and utterly surrender and sacrifice to you. But Father, may our cry today be, you are worth it. Whatever it costs us, you are worth it because you did not leave us in our dead state in sin and destined for hell. You sent Jesus. You appeared to Mary, a teenage girl, and told her, in a miraculous way that she was gonna conceive and bear the promised Savior. What a glorious message. I pray for us now as we as we contemplate this. I pray for every heart to contemplate the gospel, every heart to contemplate the truth of the passage this morning, and that we will worship you as we surrender our lives to you. In your name we pray, Lord.